You may recall that before High Plains Library District purchased its admin building, the building was a bank. You may recall, if you've seen any of the Billion Heist movies out there, that banks all have a vault inside. Long story short, when we bought our admin building, we bought a vault too. One October evening, in the vault, I found a bunch of cult movies. Yes, someone had purchased a whole bunch of cult films on DVD, Blu-ray, and I even found purchase records for digital copies. From there forward, it was my mission to pass on these wonderful cult titles for all to enjoy. Welcome to episode two of this uh, cult movie vault audio edition. Uh, today we've got two pretty great ones. I'm going to call one great one and one mediocre one. Um, let's start with the great and move on from there. So the first movie we're going to talk about today is The Stuff. Oh, The Stuff. The Stuff is a charming knockoff of The Blob complete with some fun practical effects, a sort of commentary on diet trends of the 1980s, and a child actor doing completely nonsensical things like hiding in the tank part of a tanker truck, expecting that to be a safe spot. Even if that tank had not been filled with the stuff, which, you know, we'll come to find out is uh, not just a, a lovely treat, uh, the tank of a tanker truck would be completely unsafe. Regardless, it's going to be filled with a liquid. The movie starts with a guy working in a quarry. This fellow comes across a bubbling pool of goo at the quarry's bottom. Upon discovering this pool of white goo, this gentleman dips a finger in and immediately puts the goo in his mouth. Kids, I doubt you're listening to this, but if you are, kids, don't put mysterious goos from the bottom of a quarry in your mouth ever for any reason. Now that I think about it, maybe this warning is needed more for older men who work in quarries. So, older men who work in quarries, if you come across a goo bubbling up from the ground, do not taste it. Here are some alternatives to tasting the goo. Call someone else over to take a look at it. Examine it visually. Maybe use some kind of gizmo to see if it's radioactive or poisonous. Really, any other way of examining this goo is better than putting it in your mouth. Putting it in your mouth is the worst way to assess this situation, possibly short of rubbing it on your eyes. Anyway, it turns out that the goo is delicious. So we cut to the goo being sold everywhere, and it's creatively named The Stuff. One challenge watching The Stuff is what I call the Ken Jennings Challenge. Ken Jennings, Jeopardy champ, once told of his family tradition. It goes like this. When they're watching a movie... If someone in the movie says the name of the movie, everyone stands up and claps. So if you're watching Stop or My Mom Will Shoot, and you get to the part of the movie where Stallone says Stop or My Mom Will Shoot, the right thing to do is stand up and clap, and not just because the mom in question is Estelle Getty, a Hollywood treasure. If you try and do the Ken Jennings thing with the stuff, you'll end up with a soreness that can only be described as epic. Bro, You'll be swole to the point that you'll be the envy of all your gym bros, but only until they discover that you're a, you've paid a hefty price for those quads. A hefty price indeed. You basically did like 40 squats every time you watch the stuff. 
This stuff is kind of like an ice cream, kind of like a Cool Whip, kind of like a yogurt, and everyone starts eating it. Best of all, it turns out to be good for you. So we get a couple scenes of people clearing out their entire kitchens of other foods, replacing it all with the stuff. It's been my experience that most diet foods either let you down in the flavor department or they taste great and have some other horrific problem. The stuff falls into the latter category as it turns out the stuff is alive and possesses everyone who eats it. If the stuff were real, I can see the downside of being totally possessed, but there's something to be said for basically being able to eat ice cream 24-7, possessed or not. I'm not proud to admit that there are times when I might give up my entire personality to be able to eat ice cream and nothing else. You might notice I haven't spent much time talking about the plot of the stuff. That's because the plot is pretty confusing and it's unimportant. There's a corporate spy, a little kid, a marketer, and then there's a guy named Chocolate Chip Charlie who is, I guess, like Otis Spunkmeyer, sort of a cookie magnate who wants to bring down the company selling the stuff because nobody wants to eat cookies anymore now that the stuff has hit the market. By the time Paul Servino shows up as a militia man who also owns a radio station for some reason, I've completely lost the thread of the plot. But watching the stuff for its plot is like watching Chopping Mall for its incisive commentary on American consumerism. You've come to the wrong movie. Instead, I encourage watching the stuff for its effects, some of which are super gross and great, and also as a counter to The Blob, 1988, which goes to show you just how different two movies about a pile of goo can be. As a side note on the stuff, if you Google the stuff, you'll almost certainly uh, see a spoiler image of what is be the best practical effect. It's grotesque and disgusting. Um, but if that's your thing, because you are listening to a cult movie podcast here, um, check it out. That'll kind of let you know whether or not the stuff is for you. Our next movie is The Librarian, Quest for the Spear. Um, this was kind of a special because it was recently National Library Week. So uh, I decided to move to a movie that had something to do with libraries. And what more, what better choice than The Librarian, Quest for the Spear? Let's just dive right in on this one. Our hero is Flynn Carson, who has a very cool name for a librarian. I did once go to a library conference and roomed with a guy named Lando, which is a pretty cool name, thanks to Lando Calrissian. Although at the same time, saying a name is very cool because it's a uh, the name of a tertiary Star Wars character is questionable. But anyway, Flynn is a bookworm who studied his way to 22 college degrees by the time he hit his mid-30s. A little advice for anyone who has 20 college degrees, which is probably no one, so most of you can just ignore this. The impressiveness of college degrees is a case of diminishing returns. One degree is awesome. Two is great. Three is spectacular. But then you start to slide into questionable territory. Who has that much time? Which institution is granting you these degrees? How many of your jackets have leather elbow patches? Do you have a digital frame that cycles through your diplomas just because hanging them for real is a space issue? And if you do have such a frame, is it set to go in a certain order, or do you just put it on shuffle? Anyway, the dean of the college tells Flynn that he needs to get out into the real world, that he's got too much book learning and not enough street smarts. 
this is probably one of the most unrealistic aspects of a movie where we'll soon see an actual unicorn. The dean of a college is kicking out a top-performing student who is presumably spending a ton of money at the school because his life is a little unbalanced. I can only assume that Flynn keeps collecting degrees because he's, his student loan debt is so mountainous that all he can do is hope to keep putting it off until society either creates complete loan forgiveness or collapses into a Mad Max-esque state of chaos. There are some negatives to a Mad Max-style world, but student loan forgiveness kind of goes in the plus column. Flynn gets a mysterious invitation to interview for a job at the, quote, Metropolitan Public Library, and I subtract 10 points from the movie for lack of name creativity. You could have at least have named the library something, anything, but just the Metropolitan Public Library? That's usually the part that comes after the library name. The Toledo Metropolitan Public Library. Whatever. The job turns out to be a librarian gig that involves protecting a bunch of weird historic stuff. Uh, here's a quick tip, by the way. Libraries are not going to send you a magical invitation to interview. Uh, if you receive any sort of enchanted envelope claiming to be from High Plains Library District, please quarantine the parcel immediately and call the authorities. Flynn gets the librarian job because why not? We've got a plot to advance here. So they take him into the huge storage area for all the neat stuff in the secret part of the library. Here's a brief listing of some of the items. We have Pandora's box. We have Tesla's death ray. We have the Holy Grail. The corpse of King Midas. The Ark of the Covenant. The Golden Fleece. A living unicorn. And the goose that lays golden eggs. We've got Excalibur. We've got the real Mona Lisa. Apparently the one on display is a fake. The Little Boy Prototype Atomic Bomb, a functional jetpack, a flying carpet, and the Spear of Destiny. As you may have guessed from the title, this story centers around the Spear of Destiny, which is a Christian artifact. I don't mean to critique the interest in the Spear of Destiny, but was there a particular reason we couldn't also have included the jetpack in the story? It's kind of a big tease up front here. You know how there's that rule about Chekhov's gun? If you introduce a gun in the first act, it should come back in the climax. Well, the rule, Pete's rule, is that if you introduce a jetpack, it shouldn't come back in the climax. It should be present throughout the entirety of the movie, and it should be the movie's central focus. The Rocketeer was a movie based entirely around a jetpack. It can be done. Anyway, the Spear of Destiny is stolen by an ex-librarian named Wild, who also has a much better name than most librarians. So Flynn has to give chase, which he does armed with his wits and like a book that's gone untranslated since forever. And also he does not use a jetpack, does not take a death ray, even though both of those things were readily available to him. At this point, we get a jungle adventure and we meet Nicole, who works for the library as a, quote, guardian. She's basically a tomb raider, a physically capable butt kicker to offset Flynn's bookishness. And she's a tragic figure because she fell in love with the last librarian, and she blames herself for his death. She broke the first rule of action movies, never fall in love. But she did follow the second rule of action movies, which is ignore the first rule, go ahead and fall in love, because this is a movie, so following no love rules doesn't really make for much engaging action. From here, a bunch of stuff happens. 
I know that's not a great description, but have you ever tried to describe like a Transformers movie or a Resident Evil movie in terms of plot? It's virtually impossible. Here's my best shot at it. The spear does stuff. The spear gets in the hands of the bad guys. Flynn is betrayed, sort of. And then there's something like a portal on top of a pyramid during the full moon. Really? Uh, Bob Newhart turns out to be a secret marine and punches a guy. Flynn removes Excalibur from its stone. Everything goes back to normal. Flynn's boss makes a joke that she hopes he saved his receipts from his business trip. And uh, then at that point, a linear plot sort of seems to resume, almost as if the last 10 minutes of the movie was made by a rational human. And Flynn meets with his mom, and she meets his new girlfriend, who turns out to be Nicole. Nicole tells Flynn there's another dastardly plot afoot, setting up one of the many sequels to this movie. What I don't love about Quest for the Spear is that it poses the primary qualifications for being a librarian as being a know-it-all nerd who has terrible social skills. I mean, yes, we of the bad social skills exist, but I'm going to let you in on a secret. Librarians don't know everything. What we know is how to help you find out just about everything. But as pop culture stereotypes go, I suppose this depiction of a librarian gets credit for putting a nerdy guy in the role. The field is only about 15% male in real life, as opposed to a lonely woman who is absolutely gorgeous, but she wears glasses. So of course we, the audience, understand that she's unattractive, lonely, and desperate for love. I suppose expecting a feature-length film not to have any stereotypes is probably expecting too much, unfortunately. I would have preferred a little bit more library-centric action. Maybe some Dewey Decimal versus Library of Congress cataloging discussion would have been pretty sweet. Maybe Flynn and his rival could be on opposite sides of that debate and discuss it during a sword fight. The Librarian Quest for the Spear is a bonkers movie that never got its due. It's kind of stupid in a fun way, and it's kind of fun in a stupid way. It's odd to say that about a movie about librarians, and uh, it's odd to say that it's stupid, and yet, here we are. If you take one thing away from this, let it be this. The Librarian Quest for the Spear is available in practically every library, and I think almost every librarian has seen it. So if you're thinking of writing a book or making a movie... A good way to guarantee at least a small audience is to throw in a librarian as a central character. Librarians buy books and DVDs and stuff for their libraries, so you might get just a little more exposure for your work if you make the main character a librarian instead of, I don't know, a professional getaway driver? How many of those exist anyway? And do they even buy movies? Wouldn't they just steal them and then drive away? Oh, one last thing. Just to put a cherry on top of all this... They did make a novelization of this movie, because why not? Um, you can check out this gem on Hoopla, or it's available on disc in your library. 